I invite you this morning to join me once again in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, second chapter. We'll begin reading at verse 13, 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of our God. Amen. And now, Father, by this your word and by your spirit, help us that we see this rightly, that we hear it and apply it. Oh, Lord, may we see in this your will. And may we then submit graciously, thankfully, as you give us that opportunity. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 37 AD, a boy was born in Italy named Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus. Now that's a mouthful of a name, isn't it? His mother, Agrippina the Younger, was married to the Roman Emperor Claudius. He adopted her boy, changed his name to Nero Claudia Drusus Germanicus. In 54 AD, Nero, age 17, ascended the throne after his mother poisoned Claudius. His reign would last until he was 31 when he would commit suicide. Early on, his reign was a good one, but later in life, the selfish and calculating man had his stepbrother killed. In 59 A.D., he had his mother executed. In 62 A.D., he had his first wife executed. It was not healthy to be related to Nero. On July 18, 64 A.D., a fire broke out and eventually destroyed 10 out of the 14 wards we would call them something akin to neighborhoods of the city of Rome. It raged for nine days. Rumors circulated that Nero had started the fire. Nero blamed the Christians for the fire. After all, they were seditious. They were rebels. They claimed to follow this Jesus fellow, that he was Lord and they did speak about the world ending in fire. Mm. Christians then were persecuted by Nero. 
He had them crucified. He had them sewn into the skins of wild beasts and fed to starving dogs. He drenched them in oil and burned them alive to light his gardens and host parties. Both Peter and Paul die under Nero. Peter by crucifixion, according to tradition, crucified upside down, for he claimed it was not right that he be crucified in the same way as his Savior. He was not worthy of that. Paul, being a Roman citizen, could not be crucified, but was beheaded. I tell you that to remind you of something. It is just prior to the persecution, just now articulated, that Peter writes this letter. Do not divorce the text from the context, historically. We may grouse and bellyache about government as we see it and observe it, but my dear brothers and sisters, at least for our part, and citizens in this country, we have not seen anything akin to the beast Nero. Now why does Peter write this? Well, in light of being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, a people that belong to God, in light of being called to live in such a way that unbelievers' accusations would be without merit. In fact, he ends that 12th verse, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What are the specifics? And so he's going to talk to us about relationship to government. He's going to talk to slaves, relationship to masters, or the best we can do to contextualize that for us would be employees to employers he's going to talk about wives in relationship to husbands and in all of these a word that's become a dirty word treated like a dirty word is used that word is submit or submission now let us be careful to quickly plainly acknowledge the word has in some quasi-Christian circles been wrongly used, wrongly applied, and has been wickedly wielded to people's destruction. We must never pretend that has not happened. But that does not render the word nor the biblical principle wrong nor suspect now let me let you in on a little insight here as we do see here's one of the reasons pastor preaches through books of the bible i don't want to touch this with a 10 foot pole in light of what we're just coming through with COVID. I, I, I got to tell you, 
What is staggering to me is I see people who ostensibly believe in the same Lord, confess the same gospel, read the same Bible, are parting company and declaring accursed people who are actually the people of God because they disagree with one another about something politically. Now, let me say this just real plain, okay? That's abominable. Absolutely horrific. If your political party destroys your relationship with brothers and sisters, y'all holding way too strong to your politics. I might as well just jump in and get in trouble at the beginning, right? Why waste time? We consider submission to the government a weakness. That's, that's the reality. We consider this kind of submission a weakness. But godliness affects your attitude and actions toward the government. Now, some of you are already uncomfortable because you think you know exactly what I'm going to say and you're mad. Well, let me encourage you. Save it for the right time to get mad. It'll probably happen. But your argument is not with me. Your argument is ultimately with the text. You and the Lord are going to have to work this out. First consideration. God establishes your government. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Governments are not accidents. Governments are not just things that spring out of nothingness. They are a demonstration of the common grace of God. As a general principle, hear what I'm about to say. As a general principle, any government is better than no government. No government leads to anarchy. And anarchy is always horrifically disastrous. Now, I'm going to tell you, totalitarianism is disastrous too. But I, I kind of tend to go with C.S. Lewis. Given the choice between anarchy and totalitarianism, I'll go with totalitarianism because at least he may not always have the energy to look at what you're doing. Anarchists are always looking for opportunities to plunder, pillage, and destroy. The Lord establishes government. We read it in Romans, 13th chapter. We see it here. The last few weeks we've been going through a study of the lives of Elijah and Elisha on Wednesday nights. And the last time we looked was uh, about Naaman. You remember the story of Naaman the leper? Love that story, right? Naaman is a leper, and this is what's so striking. Naaman has all this list of all the things he's accomplished, and then a thud at the end. And he was a leper. And Naaman, who led Syria against Israel, had plundered one particular place and carried off a little girl. Little girl's nameless. Little girl never showed up on anybody's uh, milk carton or Facebook post or Amber Alert. And that little girl ends up in Naaman's household working for his wife 
But she says, oh, that my master were in Samaria. There's a prophet there who could help him. And you remember how this plays out? Naaman goes and seeks help and the humiliation he had to suffer, in a sense. He had to humble himself. Go wash in the Jordan. (laughs) There's cleaner rivers at home. And you know how it turns out? I think Naaman will be in glory. I I really do. I, I expect to see Naaman in heaven. But the first verse of 2 Kings 5 strikes me. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because, now hear this next phrase, by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Did you hear that? All this great stuff Naaman did, why? Because by him the Lord gave victory to Syria. God reigns and rules over the nations. Not the only place we see this. Isaiah 44 says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, he shall fulfill my purpose. This is God speaking. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, the fourth chapter, whenever he's had the dream and he can't understand what the dream is, and Daniel tells him the dream, and in it he says, O king, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you will be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Pilate argues with Jesus, don't you know I have the power of life and death here? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Or Paul's statement in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except those from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Peter echoes every last bit of this. Government has a legitimate function and is established by God. Now when I say that, notice the wording here. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Now I know he's saying, well, now wait a minute. We don't have emperors. Folks, don't get so caught up on the specific. You missed the principle. In this day, the emperor was supreme in Rome. He had absolute authority. But he extends it to the governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Believers are to be known as people who are law-abiding and show respect for those in authority, we are to be subject. As one brother put it, what we're being taught is that the form of government may be a matter of general prudence and common sense as circumstances and wisdom dictates, and it means that we can have legitimate, frank, fruitful discussions about which approach to government best serves the common interests and so on. The form of government is open for discussion. It's a human institution. But the fact of government, Peter wants us to see, is a token to us, hear this, 
of the sustained kindness and goodness of God, who despite the sinfulness of human beings in all places and at all times, limits the chaos and the wickedness of our hearts in His common grace and makes provision to ensure there's some order and stability to society. I know it's a lot more fun when we sit around and grouse and argue policy, right? And there's a place for that, my brothers and sisters. I'm not saying we don't have a voice and shouldn't exercise that voice. But if our first instinct is to default away from Scripture to what we think and our rights, rather than first, where Scripture says, have an attitude of submission, we have made a mistake. You see, God not only establishes our government, and, and please hear this, my brothers and you know, the old argument is democracy is the absolute worst form of government except it's better than every other model, right? Um, not every place, every nation has the same kind of governance. But that doesn't mean that Christians can't live in those settings. They can and they do. The early church blossoms, expands, and grows in the midst of some of the most horrific governing. Nero, Domitian, you just go down the list. Horrid, horrid people. The church, you move forward hundreds of years, the church in France suffers tremendously under the revolution and the destruction that comes about. The French Huguenots have to flee France as fast as they can, ahead of being slaughtered. One is not arguing that you have to say these are good things. One is not even arguing you can't seek to escape such things. And today, hear me, I'm not saying there isn't a place to resist, but do you hear that Peter's first emphasis here is not the caveats about when you resist, it's about the baseline attitude of submission. Oh, we don't like that. It bothers us. But you see, the second thing is God expects your good behavior. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Can I give you a little encouragement here? That's a great little phrase to underline. This is the will of God. <laughs> you spend all this time. How do I know the will of God? How to figure out the will of God? What's the will of God for my life? Well, here's one. He tells you plainly. This is the will of God. Don't have to pray about this one other than to obey it. You don't have to wonder about it. It's stated here quite clearly for you. This is the will of God. Here it is. That by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You see, we want a God that's an immediately available cosmic personal assistant and wise guide who answers all our questions immediately about our decisions. And that is not God's function. Here's a place we're told directly the will of God. You see, my friend, think of it this way. I think Piper has a great point here. 
While you're in this world, you are, in different senses, citizens of two orders, of two systems. And I love the distinction he makes. The world with its necessary institutions and the order of the kingdom of God with its necessary values. Did you hear the difference? You're in this world with its necessary institutions, but you're also part of the kingdom of God with its necessary values. Your values come from the kingdom of God, but you have to live as citizens in a necessary institution. Christians are called here and throughout the text of Scripture to serve others, to go the extra mile, to suffer injustice without demanding rights, knowing we have an assured status before God and that He will vindicate us at last. Christian, never lose sight of something. No matter the injustice we see here, the day is coming when the ultimate judge is going to set all of it right. Without excuse, without anything other than absolute, perfect, complete, righteous judgment. Doesn't mean we shouldn't push for righteousness now, but my friend, understand that in this world, righteousness and justice are always going to be, in some sense, imperfect. Because we're the ones administering it, and we get it wrong. Hmm. See, Jesus cut across all those revolutionary expectations when he refused to claim political kingship and lead a revolt against the Romans. At that point, crowds began to desert him. Don't ever miss that imagery and reality in the Gospels. Why do you think it is they got so excited over loaves and fishes being multiplied? Well, they got a free meal. Yep, that's always nice. I'm in favor of those two. Nice to get a free meal. But you've got to know that stoked a fervor. What could we do as a people and an army if we didn't have to worry about provisions? Just make sure we got one kid with his basket lunch of barley loaves and dried fish. Everybody's eating. He turns it down. He refuses it. He will not be that kind of king. And my family hear this. Even John the Baptist wonders about this thing. You remember? It's, I think it's in Matthew 11. John's in prison, so he sends his disciples. <laughs> now, keep in mind, what has he said before? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here's the one whose sandal, I'm not worthy to untie the latch to his sandal. Here's the one. Go to him. He's the one. And then he sends word with his disciples. You the one? We're looking for somebody else. Why does John do that? Because John had an assumption if the Messiah came, Roman rule and guys like Herod would be kicked out. And John's wondering why he's still in prison. There's misunderstanding. Folks, if you look at the book of Acts, you see examples of this good behavior that is frustrating to and ultimately ignored and called wicked by evil authorities. A man's healed at the beautiful gate. 
You ever pondered that? The, the irony, the, the weirdness. Beautiful gate, man lame. Beautiful gate, beggar. Peter and John, look at us. What you got for me? Don't have any silver and gold. Great. What if God will give you? In the name of Jesus, rise up and go. And that, followed by the commotion, followed by their preaching, gets them arrested. They're threatened by the Sanhedrin. They're set free by an angel after being arrested. They're beaten by the Sanhedrin. We read in Acts 5.41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now things get worse. Stephen is stoned to death. The church is scattered. Peter's arrested, gets miraculously delivered after James is executed. The gospel spreads. Paul and Silas go out on these missionary journeys, taking the word of the Lord. They go to Philippi and find themselves arrested and beaten. And then the attempt is made to quietly release them, to let them go. And Paul, still submissive, but he knows he's got a fledgling little church here. He's going to hold them accountable in the right way. He said, no, 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 no. They beat us and we're Roman citizens and we didn't get a trial. Let them come down here and do it themselves. And you talk about a freaked out group of local magistrates. They were absolutely terrified. They get, they get them. They Apologies, we'll let you go. Please just leave town, get out. Why does Paul do that? I think Paul was trying to defend that fledgling church. He was going to make them live by their own laws that they already said they agreed to. My friend, you see it throughout the text. Paul goes before the Sanhedrin. When he's arrested in Jerusalem. And you remember in his trial, he says, I have served God with a clear conscience. And the high priest tells somebody standing near him, slap him. Bust him right in the mouth. And Paul, God will strike you, you whitewashed tomb. You would speak thus? To the high priest. And, and Paul doesn't do what we wait a minute. You bet. I got my rights. I didn't realize he was the high priest. Because the scripture says, don't speak evil of authorities. It, it stuns me that not long ago there's a, a particular phrase that goes around about our current president, a derogatory phrase. And I actually saw an online discussion about whether it was appropriate for Christian gatherings to chant that phrase. L let me just clear this up real easy. When you do that, please don't call yourself Christian. And certainly don't call the meeting Christian. I don't know how we get around this. We are to do good. Christians, by their good behavior, are to show the foolishness of the accusations against them. 
when our actions are merely reactionary rather than good, we have not adorned the gospel. All right. God establishes your government. God expects your good behavior. And finally this, verses 16 and 17, God emancipates you, God frees you to serve. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Service is the means of doing good. We are to be, as best as lies within us, obedient citizens and useful citizens. What does it mean to be useful here? What does it mean to live this life? What does it mean to live free but not use that as a cover-up for evil? Well, these are simple things. Working if you're able, paying your taxes, serving on juries, voting your conscience, helping your neighbors, caring for the poor, helping women or couples who are struggling with an unexpected pregnancy, fostering and adopting children, caring for the elderly. There's all sorts of things that we could do here, my brothers and sisters, that would show the servant attitude that we are supposed to display. Of course, in the eyes of the world, none of that really matters because that's not, none of that's about power. And folks, if you haven't figured this out yet, our culture worships power. And far too much of the church has been captured to do the same thing. We worship power. In the eyes of the world, none of these are powerful acts because none of these people have any power. That's all right. We're to serve them because Scripture tells us to. And notice that summary in verse 17. I carry that around in my heart a lot. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. First, I'm supposed to show respect to everyone. Well, not everyone deserves respect. I don't notice a caveat here. I am to be respectful toward everyone. I don't get a pass for rudeness. I don't get a pass to be harsh. I'm to show respect to everyone. It's, it's kind of entertaining now as I, you know, you get white in your beard. Or white with what's left. And I occasionally have younger guys who want to get up. I walk in a room, they want to stand. I'm not, settle down, boys. First of all, you're making me feel old. <laughs> and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all. But my brothers and sisters, we ought to be showing respect toward all sorts of people, even those who we think may not actually deserve it. They deserve it if for no other reason they're made in the image of God. Hmm. And you know, we, I'm going to get in trouble yet. Somebody's a panhandler out there begging. I have to remind myself, respectful. This is an image bearer. A young person who's a little full of themselves and maybe a little blind to how full of themselves they are. Respect. Mm. Love other believers. Now that ought to 
me, how hard is that to figure out? <laughs> supposed to love the brotherhood. Supposed to love those in the family, right? And boy, we battle even do that one, don't we? We said it before, some of you people are hard to love. And I'm one of those. I get it, okay? We're all in that category. Fear God. God claims our love and our respect. We should honor Him. Never forget, my friend, Coram Deo. You live your life before God. He's always listening. He always sees. Honor the emperor. Oh, that last one. Harder. Peter could have cited several examples of civil disobedience, but he didn't. Why? Because the greatest need for this group of believers at this time was not to hear about disobedience, was not to hear about pushing back, it was to hear about submission. That is not in any way to say we must go along with every single thing the government demands of us. There are times to resist. I'm not saying that's not true. There are times to disobey. But our first response, our first response ought not be resistance and disobedience. In fact, that's far too prevalent given our natures. We lack patience. We lack humility. My brothers and sisters, I say this to you because you've got to grasp something. If, if you haven't felt it yet, the ground has shifted dramatically beneath our feet. I've cited this before, but I thought it helpful again. Carl Truman, in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, warns us of something, reminds us of something. There has been a radical and ongoing transformation of sexual attitudes and behaviors that's occurred in the West since the early 60s. Various factors have contributed to this shift, from the advent of the pill to the anonymity of the Internet. The behaviors that characterize the sexual revolution are not unprecedented. Homosexuality, pornography, and sex outside the bounds of marriage, for example, have been hardy perennials throughout human history. These are not new things. What marks the modern sexual revolution out as distinctive is the way it has normalized these and other sexual phenomena. It has come to require positive, positive reputation of traditional sexual mores to the point where belief in or maintenance of such traditional views is seen as ridiculous. And even a sign of serious mental or moral deficiency. The most obvious evidence of this change is the way language has been transformed to serve the purpose of rendering illegitimate any dissent from the current political consensus on sexuality. Criticism of homosexuality is now homophobia. That of transgenderism is transphobia. 
the use of the term phobia is deliberate and effectively places such criticism of the new sexual culture into the realm of the irrational and points toward an underlying bigotry on the part of those who hold such views. I say that to remind you, my friend, living righteously in this age, even living submissively and rightly toward government, does not mean it's going to be easy. I am warning you, there is suffering before us. I am not for a moment saying that we shouldn't do what we can righteously and within law to hold ground, to stand, to push if we need to as much. But my brothers and sisters, why is it that our immediate response is not the response of submission to a government? I think it's simply this. We lose sight of the fact that God has given us what we have. I know, so, well, no, wait a minute, we voted. Yeah, we voted. And here I want to let you know, every single time there's been a vote in the United States, the outcome is, yes, the will of the people, but behind that is the will of God. And our culture's wickedness is now yielding a very dangerous fruit, ultimately. But I read that, and I cannot help but think about something. <laughs> Peter writes to believers that are about to be in such a hostile environment, many of them are going to die. They are going to die for what they believe. And yet, what is his first encouragement to them? Submit. Peter's intent seems to be to deal with only one side of these relationships. He wants to talk about good works from the vantage point of one most likely to be mistreated. In other words, he doesn't intend to write a full treatise on the responsibilities of all parties. He's writing to those he knows are going to face struggle and difficulty as Christians. We live under a government with whom we may disagree strenuously. We must humble ourselves under God's mighty hand as sinners ourselves. We must treat officials with respect because they're image bearers. We must treat them with respect because they are an authority by God's will. We must honor them by submitting to all laws we can without compromising our commitment to God. We must engage our culture, not run from it, and we must not use derogatory language toward officials. That just seems baseline stuff. Our godliness must affect us. Now, I've, I've pondered this too, and somebody else helped me think through this, and I'm going to wrap this up. I'm actually going to put it together here. Okay? I, I, it never struck me. Peter. He writes this, right? And, and then I remember something from the Gospels. I think all four Gospels tell us that the night Jesus was betrayed, somebody got awful excited with their concealed carry sword 
And the casualty was a servant of the high priest who lost an ear. And Jesus stops this, heals the man. But you know, there's only one gospel that names the assailant. John 18, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Oh, family of God. <laughs> so we ask a couple questions. Was the accusation against Jesus right? Was what was done to him just? Was the way they did it proper? The answer to all that, no, no, no. And I love, you know, in one of the gospel accounts, Jesus says, hey, fellas, I've got angels. If I wanted to fight this, I'd just kill everybody. Twelve legion of angels set loose on humanity. We're all dead. Everybody. Jesus saw beyond the injustice to the reality of the will of his Father. Now please understand, I'm not saying you and I have those kinds of insights, but are there times we may be blind to what God is doing and ought to be a little more humble? I love how one brother summarized this. Peter says to us, in essence, I have put that sword away. I have put my sword away. I think, don't read more into this than I'm trying to say. But my friends, whenever we are seen as the first ones raging, when we are seen as the first ones battling, when we're seen as the first ones who are being evil, I believe, in our speech. Do you understand we are, in a sense, destroying the witness of the gospel of Christ? We are called to submission. And I think even if it comes to the point of resistance, we, this is going to be fun to develop, we resist submissively. Hmm. Yeah, we don't have time to unpack that. You're done, and I can tell. Hear the apostles' exhortation. Submit to human institutions. Live good lives. Don't give cause for them to think evil of you. And even if they're going to wrongly accuse you, that's nothing but what they did to our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's going to pull that out later? My friends, this is really one of the tests of how deep the gospel has gone into us and how broad it works out in our lives, isn't it? Are we willing to patiently do who he's called us to be, even when things are going against us? Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that we would hear and heed what you have commanded us through your apostle, that we would submit.
I pray as well, Father, that you grant us the wisdom to know the times when we ought to stand and resist. Lord, we're not necessarily sharp enough to figure that out. Help us. And Lord, may we have grace towards one another as each one works this out. Help us not be judgmental of one another. Help us pray rightly for one another. Help us pray for those over us. And Lord, we do pray for those in authority. We pray for our local officials and those on the state level and the national level. Lord, we pray you preserve them from evil and evil decisions. And Lord, we pray that you would limit the wickedness they might do and the mischief they might cause. And we pray, Father, that as far as lies within us, we would submit and be obedient, good citizens until the point we can no longer do that submission as demanded. And even then, Father, in our resistance, let it be done with grace and a willingness to accept the consequences. May we live this knowing we have a great king who reigns right now and places all of his enemies as a footstool under his feet. We thank you that we were enemies, but because of the gospel we have been made your children. And we are part of that conquered people, and for that we give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand now and sing in response to the word of God. Thank you.